1 John chapter 5, verse 18. Kim and I have been deeply enriched by the solemn warnings and warm encouragements of our pastors from the book of 1 John these past few months. We listen to their messages religiously in Cambodia. We don't miss a single one. 1 John chapter 5, verses 18 through 21. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. From these four verses, uh, we're going to look at five different points today. Uh, notice John's repetition of the words, uh, we know. Uh, this was John's uh, pushback, saying we know at the very end of his, his, his uh, letter here. It was one of many pushbacks that John gave against the false teachers of his day who claimed to have superior knowledge and who said that ordinary Christians like you uh, could not have this kind of knowledge. Knowing certain things with a high degree of certainty is really important in our lives. Uh, we know about preparing food, the importance of vitamins and minerals, hygiene, uh, how to drive, how to communicate with others, and so on. And not only that, all of you have a particular slice of knowledge that you know more than others, and so people depend on you and maybe even pay you for that knowledge. Uh, those in medicine, those in law, teaching, art, building, manufacturing, landscaping, child-rearing, on and on. Postmodernism and the related woke ideologies that have come from that insist that since we can't know anything exhaustively, which is true, then we can't know anything with real certainty, which is not true. And so a postmodern person strikes this very humble uh, agnostic pose, but it's just a pose. His idea fails the test of everyday life. He still goes to his doctor, doesn't he? And receives life-saving help from his doctor, who does not know everything in his field exhaustively, but is of great help. In a related way, uh, these recent philosophies uh, also claim that we can't know for sure the meaning of any kind of communication. You can see how that strikes right at the root of Christianity, right? Uh, because meaning is determined by the reader or the listener, not the writer. Again, this is just a pose. Uh, because... And we know this because postmodern authors assume that we can understand their books and articles. And I've, I've noticed that they're annoyed when we don't understand what they've written. 
Albert Moeller tells the hilarious story of his first day on the job uh, as president of what was then a very theologically liberal seminary, Southern Seminary. And uh, he announced in his opening address that since the seminary has always been a creedal institution, all professors must agree to that creed or leave the school. He returned to his office and told his secretary that they would have some visitors soon. (laughs) Sure enough, within minutes, the head of the faculty came in, quite upset. He says, you can't require that. You can't be so naive as to think that the words in our creed and in the Bible have some knowable, unchangeable meaning after hundreds of years. Albert Moeller leaned forward in his chair and said, you're fired. The professor sputtered. He says, you can't do that. I have a contract. Moeller said, you can't be so naive as to believe that the words in your contract have a clear and knowable meaning. The professor's philosophy failed the everyday test, the real-life test. We can know things. Not only that, this idea that we can't know things with a a large amount of certainty fails the Scripture test. Scripture repeatedly says we can know truth, we can know God, so much so that we will be held accountable for rejecting that knowledge. And I'm going to give you some verses just from the beginning of 1 John just this one little tiny book, and by uh, chapter 2, verse 3, and by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Verse 5, by this we may know that we are in him. 2.13, you know him who is from the beginning. You know the Father. 2.20, but you have been anointed by the Holy Spirit, and you all have knowledge. 2.21, I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it. We know that when He appears, we shall be like Him. You know that He appeared in order to take away sins, and in Him there is no sin. And that just takes me to chapter 3, verse 2. It just keeps going on and on, and this is just in this one little book. It's obvious, isn't it, why our pastor chose the title of this series, That You May Know. Amen. So, that, that humble, agnostic pose that we can't really know anything with certainty and that God's eternal truths are, are too amazing, too large, too wonderful to be forced into this little tiny box that we call the Bible. It sounds so humble, doesn't it? But it's actually the height of, of arrogance and rebellion even. Because it says that the omnipotent, omniscient God is unable to find a way to communicate truth and communicate himself to us in a way that provides a really high degree of certainty. It says that God is lying when he says that we can know things and that his truth is available for us. Jesus spoke millions of words undoubtedly while he was here. And he assumed, he expected his listeners to understand him and said that they would even be held accountable for what they had heard from him. And now we go back to 1 John, Antichrist teachers, that's John's expression, not mine, Antichrist teachers had infiltrated one of John's churches and they were presenting a different Christ than the Christ sent by God and witnessed to by the apostles, a Christ that 
didn't actually come in the flesh. The word anti can mean opposed to, against, but it can also mean instead of, in place of, substitute, counterfeit. It was a counterfeit Christ. But here's the amazing news from 1 John. By, by a miracle of God and by the courage of the ordinary believers in that church, these antichrist teachers had been expelled by the Christians, the faithful believers. And that's what should happen, right? If you look at church history, you see that so often that's not the case. It's the other way around. The faithful Christians wait so long to act against the false teaching. Maybe they want to be nice. Maybe they're completely deceived. Uh, Maybe they feel like, let's leave this for the experts. You are the experts, is what John says in 1 John. But they take too long, and eventually the followers of the false teachers outnumber the faithful, and guess who gets kicked out? Yeah, the true Christians. And they get accused of disunity. But it is the false teacher who brings disunity to the church, not those who want to remain with what was heard from the beginning in the words of John. John says, don't look for something new. Now, as we read on in 1 John, we see that these false teachers uh, who were trying to, they were still trying to influence the faithful. And so John realized that he had to help them become good at diagnosing false teaching. Who was the true Christ? Who was the instead of Christ? Who were the true teachers and who were the false? And he said, you're supposed to make this diagnosis using the original teaching of Christ and his apostles. What you have heard from the beginning. And not look for something new. So he gave them, and this is hard to believe because 1 John is a little tiny book, 105 verses. He gave them 65, perhaps more than that, diagnostic statements. And they begin with words like if, if we, if anyone, if they, if you, 19 times. The word whoever or everyone, whoever, everyone who, anyone who, no one who, whoever says, if anyone says, 33 times. And then our word for today, no. By this we know that you may know. This is how we know. We know 12 times in this little book. And nearly all these expressions are diagnostic in 1 John. Like when my dermatologist looks at the spot on my hand and, uh, and, uh, and I say, uh, is that cancer? And he says, no. Uh, if it has this, uh, these characteristics, this characteristic, this other characteristic, it's likely, it's likely not. But he says, look at this spot here. <laughs> uh, and, and he said, uh, if it has these characteristics, then it, it likely is. And it was. This is called making a diagnosis. False teaching is as deadly as cancer. Christians must be really good at making uh, this diagnosis. Out of love, opposing false teaching is a matter of family love. It's one of the most important themes of this little book of 1 John. We're a family. Family terms are used more in 1 John than in any, any other book in the Bible at a higher rate than any other book in the Bible. Even here in our final verse, little children, keep yourselves from idols. In our text today, the Apostle John tells us some things that we Christians can know with a very high degree of certainty. And the first thing is right here in verse 18. It says, and I'm going to, it says, we know that everyone who has been born of God, and I'm going to speak literally here, does not sin. That's what the original language says, does not sin. Uh, 
Now, you might say, well, I don't know that. <laughs> that seems like that's not true. And this is the most difficult point to understand uh, and to uh, appreciate. So we're going to spend most of our time just on this little phrase that says, basically, we know that Christians don't sin. So this is stated so starkly that most modern translations add a word or two to this line, like the one who uh, is born of God does not keep on sinning or continue to sin. And why do they add these words? It's obvious, right? Number one, to say a Christian doesn't sin just doesn't comport with reality. Ask a hundred Christians, they'd give you a different They'd give you a hundred different answers, right? A hundred answers that are different than the statement, I should say. But secondly, to say one who is born of God does not sin also seems to contradict what John himself said at the beginning of 1 John. Remember? 1 John 1.8, he said, if a person says he has no sin, he is a liar. The next verse, verse 9, says if a, a Christian confesses his sin, God is faithful to forgive and to cleanse him from unrighteousness. Two verses later, chapter 2, verse 1, my little children, I am writing these things to you so that you do not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, the propitiation for our sins. It seems like in chapter 5, John totally forgot what he said in chapter 1, and so translators feel like they ought to use, add the words, continue to sin or keep on sinning. But I don't think it's necessary to add those words, and I'll tell you why. Something else is going on here uh, when John says, we know that Christians don't sin. The sentence is in present tense in both Greek and English. Now, how many hundreds of times have you heard preachers like me uh, say, uh, this verb is present tense in Greek, which implies continual action. And it all seems a bit mysterious, like the waving of a wand. Uh, but, uh, and that's because we don't speak Greek. Uh, even, even most preachers don't speak Greek. Uh, but we do speak English. And they're both Indo-European languages. And we find out that in English as well as many Indo-European languages, including Greek. The present tense is used in uh, a certain way, usually. So, how do we use the present tense in English? Simple present. Let's take the verb eat. So, I'm in the kitchen. My wife calls out to me, uh, what are you doing? And I say, I eat. So, <laughs> present tense. Uh, my wife will think that maybe I had another stroke. <laughs> Here's what's ironic about this. So we, we don't usually use present tense to describe what we're presently doing. It's just the way it is. Uh, we use present progressive. I'm eating. So when do we use simple present? Well, if you visit me in Cambodia, and I'm driving around my town, and I point to a restaurant, and I say, using simple present tense, we eat there. Now, you wouldn't say, no, you're driving, <laughs> uh, because you know what it means. You know that it means that with a certain amount of regularity, or when we eat out, that's where we eat. Eating is our normal, repeated action. Eating at that restaurant is our normal, repeated action. And uh, grammarians call that durative action. It's kind of an enduring uh, action that we do often. Uh, and the frequency of that 
enduring action is determined by the context of what we're talking about. So if I say, we fly Korean Air, you know that it's not every week, but probably once a year, once every two years. Now, because the present tense in English and Greek and many other Indo-European languages has this durative quality, regular action, present tense becomes a really good way to express whatever is normative. Dogs bark, present tense. Snow falls in the winter, present tense. Women have babies. Men grow beards, present tense. And also, because present tense is usually durative, so describing this regular, normal, repeated activity, we like to use the present tense when we write rules. And this brings us to, back to our passage. Rules. Or enduring principles. Like free men fight better than slaves. Present tense. Uh, water boils at 212 degrees. These are scientific laws. Governmental laws. Parking is prohibited. Not was prohibited or will be. Uh, nearly 40 years ago, Kim and I wrote down some family rules and, and scriptures you can, uh, that go along with it. Uh, you can get, we, uh, Dawn uh, made a whole bunch of copies in, at the desk if you want to pick one up, uh, pick a copy up. So we wrote these rules, and guess what? We didn't even know we were doing this, but all the rules are in present tense, because that's what you do. In our home, we trust God with our needs and cares, is the very first rule. In our home, we do what leads to peace. In our home, we speak what is true. Now, if one of my kids just lied, and I, I said to him, in present tense, son, in our family, we speak the truth. None of my kids have ever answered. What do you mean we speak the truth? Dad, I just lied. <laughs> see, they're, they're, they, they, they didn't do that because they did not see a contradiction between that rule, that aspiration, and the failure to obey that rule. They understood that the present tense is used for rules, for normative expected family behavior. Now, the same thing, I believe, is happening here in this, in this verse. Uh, John states, the one born of God does not sin, or short version, Christians don't sin. It's a family rule in a family book. As I said, no other book in the Bible uses family terms more frequently, and 1 John also gives the family rules. In God's family, Say it with me. We don't sin. And if you say, but I just did, you don't understand the language of rules and aspiration. Now, let's not just think grammatically. Let's think theologically. What else could John have said beside, besides Christians don't sin? Christians don't sin much? Doesn't make sense, does it? Christians sin 20% less than others? Or what if my wife and I had written down, in our family we don't lie so much? <laughs> now, in a sense, that's a true statement. But it's, we're not going to put that on a piece of paper. <laughs> or, back to John, I write these things to you so that you will decrease your sinning by 50%. Love God with most of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and you'll be all right. Or be sort of holy. 
I mean, at least in that way, the reality matches the rule, right? But we don't want to talk that way. In fact, we can't talk that way. Sin is so serious, so eternally deadly, so destructive to our joy, and, and, and it robs God of glory because we love this thing more than we love him that we just can't talk that way about it. Sin is a deadly cancer. What cancer surgeon ever says to his patient, listen, our goal is to go in there and get 80% of that cancer. You'd be bothered if someone said that to you. You can't talk that way about cancer. You can't talk that way about sin. A Christian's goal is 100% freedom from cancer and 100% freedom from sin. And the motive is always love. And this is why a few weeks back when Drew was preaching a powerful message on 1 John that really impacted me, he referenced at length Romans 8, 13, and 14 where Paul speaks about sin using the same kind of stark terminology that John does. In fact, you can turn there if you'd like or it'll be up on the screen. Verse 13 of chapter 8, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit, it has to be by the Spirit, you put to death, you kill the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit into doing doing this, killing sin, are the sons of God. And may I add, the daughters of God. Paul was as serious and uncompromising as John. John says, Christians don't sin. Paul says, kill sin or sin will kill you. Paul here is referring to a type of combat called mortal combat, where two people fight to the death. Mortal combat cannot be solved by negotiation. It can't be solved by compromise. It can only be resolved by the death of one of the combatants. Same with your battle against sin. Kill sin or sin will kill you. Now, why do the apostles speak so starkly about sin? Because Jesus did. Our Lord Jesus Christ did. He said sin is so serious, so deadly, so so destructive of, of human flourishing and happiness, and it robs God so much of the glory that he deserves. He said, if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. Pluck it out. It's better for you to enter heaven with one eye than enter hell with two eyes. Now, Jesus knew that Sin doesn't reside in the eyeball. In fact, it was one of his most revolutionary teachings that sin has its source, all sin has its source where? In the human heart, the sinful nature, the spiritual part of us, not in our body. So when he said, pluck it out, cut it off, he was talking about dealing ruthlessly with sin. Be ruthless. Or in Paul's words, kill it by the help of the Holy Spirit or it will kill you and drag you into hell. John Piper, on this passage in Romans, said this, always be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. And he went on to say this, and this was one of the most encouraging sentences in that sermon. I listened to this 30 years ago, and it had a powerful impact on my life. He said, the proof that you're a Christian is not that you're always winning these battles, but that you're always fighting these battles. Never negotiating, never making a deal with the cancer that we call sin. 
Spurgeon also preached on this. He said, he said making some kind of compromise with sin, 99%, 1% kind of a thing. He says, no, that's like keeping a deadly pet viper in your shirt all toasty warm. Since reptiles love warmth and, and, and you feed it and you pet it and you hide it because you don't want other people to see it, but one day it kills you. And Spurgeon said, kill the viper before it kills you. Our particular cultural moment influences us, pushes us to have a different view of the sin that's still left over in our lives. So that we tend to make compromises with it, we get used to it, like getting used to your mean neighbor or something like that. Uh, But not only that, we even sometimes in our culture glory in our sin. Glory in failure, glory in brokenness and being a hot mess, as they say. God forbid that we should glory in anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Kill the sin before it kills you. And I'm ashamed to tell you that it was only last year that I began to specifically and frequently, every day, ask the Holy Spirit, who is my best friend, to help me kill the viper, to lead me into mortal combat against the sin that remained. Pride, boastfulness, sarcasm, lack of forgiveness, and on and on. Since then, sin has won many battles, but fewer than before. And at least there's a battle. Amen. Now, before we move on, I want you to notice how nuanced the Bible's teaching on sin is, sin that's present in a Christian's life. The same Bible that says a Christian doesn't sin, 1 John 5, 18, says a Christian doesn't say he has no sin. Isn't that interesting? There's real nuance there, something to meditate on. The same Bible that says a Christian doesn't sin, 1 John 5, 18, says a Christian confesses his sin immediately and receives forgiveness because he has an advocate in heaven, Jesus the righteous, 1 John 1, 9 to 2, 2. The same Bible that says a Christian doesn't sin says a Christian follows the Holy Spirit into mortal combat against remaining sin. And God is always motivated by love in these commands, when he says, Christians, don't sin. And he is always motivated by love when he says, when we do sin, we can confess our sins and receive forgiveness. Amen. Christians don't sin. That's the family rule. That's our goal. That's our aspiration. And we come to an altar call in the middle of my sermon, and I beg you, if you have made some sort of peace with your precious viper, Kill it, or it will kill you. You say, well, how do I kill it? It says there in Romans 8, by the Holy Spirit. By the Holy Spirit. Ask the Holy Spirit every day to show you what kind of ruthless action you need to take against your sin, and make sure it's your sin, not the other person's, right? We're really good at that, right? Seeing other people's sins. Your sins. Maybe you need an accountability accountability partner, don't we all? Uh, Confess your sins one to another, the Bible says. Maybe you need to stop doing certain things that are associated with a particular sin that you commit. 
be ruthless. Maybe you need a friend to tell you after every get-together you have, if you talk too sarcastically, like I'm wont to do, or, or talk too much, like I'm also, I also tend to do, uh, ask him to be accountable to somebody. The Bible says we're supposed to listen more than we talk. Kill the viper. Maybe you need to get counseling or join a, 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 a Christian group that where, where those who are addicted to certain sins can get together and encourage each other. Do whatever it takes to kill the viper before it kills you. But do not, do not make compromises with that viper. Now, let's go on to the second half of verse 18. What else has God allowed us to know with certainty? And it's a great blessing, isn't it, to know certain things with certainty. Second half of verse 18, we know that he who was born of God, Jesus, was born of God. We are the people who are born of God. Jesus was the one who was born of God. Again, John is pushing back against those false teachers who said Jesus wasn't really born as a human. He uh, just seemed to be. He who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. Amen. We know that Jesus protects Christians, and Satan can't touch us. Look at Luke twenty-two thirty-one. Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Can you imagine Jesus praying like that for you? He does. He prays just like that for you. Luke 21, 17, you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but not a head of your hair will perish. He's talking about eternally. John 10, 28, I give them eternal life and they will never perish. Never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. This is one of my favorites, Jude 24, now to him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. John 17, 12, Jesus said, while he's praying this to the Father, while I was with them, I, I kept them in your name which you have given me. I have guarded them. 1 Thessalonians 5, 23. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who called you is faithful, and he will do it. Amen? What else can we know as Christians? Besides, we know Christians don't sin, we know Jesus protects Christians, and we know Satan can't touch Christians. Verse 19 he says, we know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. This phrase, from God, or of God, is one of John's synonyms in 1 John for being born of God, as he said in the previous verse, being born of God. It's talking about the miracle of new birth that, that, uh, that Jesus taught Nicodemus in, uh, taught to Nicodemus in uh, John chapter 3. 
And in 1 John, the new birth is one of the most important concepts in the book. It's repeated over and over. And it is the key, the practical key, to everything that is said in 1 John. And it's the practical key to what we've been talking about this morning. See, only people who are born of God can have the attributes of God, can share in these attributes of God. And what are the two theological statements that John makes in 1 John? Well, John and the other apostles were with Jesus about 10 or 15,000 hours, daylight hours, waking hours. Uh, it's a long time. It's a lot of eyewitness hours. Then you add the eyewitness hours of those who traveled with the, the apostles. And I figure it's up to maybe a quarter of a million eyewitness hours. Christianity is a religion of historical fact. And John says in, at the beginning of 1 John, we were with him, we heard him, we listened to him, we ate with him, and all that we saw him do, all that we heard him say, we are proclaiming to you. And then John does something brilliant. He distills everything he heard and said into two powerful theological statements. Do you remember what they are? God is light and God is love. God is light and God is love. But here's the question. How can, and God is light has to do with, with holiness, with truthfulness, lighting the path. This is a a common theme in the Bible, using the word light in those ways. And, uh, and love, we know what love is by what our Lord Jesus did for, for us. And so God is light and God is love. But here's the practical question. How can we sinners have any hope of sharing in these amazing attributes of God? And the answer is to be born of God. Chapter 3, verse 1. Look what kind of love the Father has given us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. Amen? We are the children of God. And how do we become the children of God? Through faith in Christ. Believing in Jesus Christ. Listen to 5.1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. Now notice that John says here in verse 19, we can know that we're born of God. And he said something similar in, in uh, 5.13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. I think it'd be really sad if God, at great cost to himself, provided, procured our salvation, our eternal life, but we could never know for sure. Some Christians think that's a good thing, to never know for sure, because maybe that'll just keep us on the path, right? Wrong. Uh, because... A person who's always off balance, wondering, doubting, especially doubting, especially when difficult times come. That person will be tempted to turn away from the Lord, wonder if God had really accepted them. The Lord was angry at them. But we can be born of God and we can know it as well. Now, if we are born of God, who is the father of those in the world? And it's very sad that the whole world, it says, lies in the power of the evil one. And you and I did too, until God rescued us from that domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. Look at this picture that I'm, I want to show you. Gaze at this photograph of these Brau and Krung Christians at their recent Brau Krung Bible School on Romans. If you look carefully, you'll see our own Brian Kane there, who's fluent in the, Brau, the, the Krung language. 
um, uh, they don't really need him to be there. They just sort of give him a couple lessons so he doesn't feel left out. They can do it all themselves, see. Uh, so, uh, see these people? Every single one of them, of the adults anyway, every single one of them lived not too many years ago in daily fear that you and I have a really difficult time imagining. Daily fear in the power of the evil one, in Satan's uh, malevolent, malicious, capricious hands, never, never knowing why awful things were happening to them, always trying to figure out why they were sick or why they had this misfortune, going to a diviner who, is, who then becomes uh, uh, demon-possessed and gives them an answer, and it's because you, you didn't sacrifice this particular animal to this particular ancestor or something like that. And constant fear. But God, in his amazing love, rescued them from the domain, the dominion of darkness, and transferred them into the kingdom of his beloved son. And now they can be holy. They can believe truth. They can love God and love others because now they have been born of God. They're of God. They're from God. Even this next picture, this is the Ratanakadi Pastor's School uh, that we, we just recently had on the book of Romans. Look at all these people. These pastors, these future pastors, these Bible translators, just 20 years ago were worshiping demons. And now they're worshiping the true and living God. Hallelujah. Oh, what wondrous love is this, oh my soul, that thou, the Lord of bliss, would bear the dreadful curse for our souls. Amen. All right, verse 20, what else do we know with certainty? Uh, well, in verse 20, we have a synopsis of the entire gospel, just like we did at the very beginning. Uh, we know that the Son of God has come. He has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. And so we, this, is, this is what he does at the very beginning of 1 John. He gives us an overview of the gospel, and it has five elements. He says God, and by, here's God right here, the thumb, and here we are way over here, as far apart from God as possible. Uh, and notice the movement is always going to be from God to us. And all we do is respond. Listen, God, who loves us, sent his only son to live a perfect life, to show us, reveal to us what God is like, and then to die on the cross and rise again. Jesus, the son of God, chose 12 apostles. Christianity is a religion of Christ and his apostles. You can't separate them. He chose apostles to be official witnesses of all he said and all he did. And all that, Je they, all that they saw Jesus say and do, they proclaimed. They proclaimed as an official proclamation, a solemn proclamation as solemn witnesses. And they proclaimed it to, and here's where we, here's where we come. They proclaimed it to us. They proclaimed it to us. And every, let's, let's go back now, backwards. Everyone, everyone who hears this official message that we call the gospel or the New Testament in its fullest form and believes in Jesus will have fellowship with the apostles and more important, will have fellowship 
with Jesus Christ and with God the Father. Perfect, eternal, amazing fellowship. This is what John said at the beginning of the letter. And this is what John says again in this second to the last verse. And notice the emphasis on the phrase in, on the word in at the very end. In Christ, he says, to become one with God, to become one with Jesus Christ is the ultimate thing that we can experience. This union with Christ, by the way, is not just one of many steps in the gospel. You know there's a lot of steps in the gospel, right? So, you know, uh, foreknowledge, God foreknew us, he predestined us. Uh, he called us, we believed in him, we had faith in Christ, we repented. There are all these steps. Union with Christ is not one of the steps in this, in this, in salvation. It undergirds every single step. And so, God foreknew and predestined us in Christ. He called us in Christ. He justified us in Christ. He adopted us in Christ. He, he will glorify us in Christ. We will receive the inheritance in Christ. In fact, every good thing we receive from God, we receive, say it with me, in Christ. Amen. There was a young lady who spent all her money to care for her sick mother. She even borrowed large sums of money until she owed so much that she could never pay it back. One day she met a kind and good man, and they fell in love. He was heir to a vast fortune. On the day of their marriage, the day of their union with each other, her debt became his debt. And his riches became her riches. And the first thing he did was go to the bank and pay the debt in full. You and I have a debt of sin that we could never pay on the day we believed in Jesus Christ and became one with him through faith, our debt became his debt and his riches and goodness and righteousness became ours. It's called justification. And the first thing Jesus did was pay our debt in full. It's not a perfect illustration, but it reminds us that everything we receive from God, including forgiveness and justification, comes to us solely because of our union with Christ. And now we come to verse 21. Little children, guard yourselves from idols. Does it seem strange to you that after never having once used the word idol or idolatry in 1 John, that he would end with this? It almost sounds like an afterthought, doesn't it? But I think that you are understanding after months of studying the book of 1 John that the entire book is about guarding yourselves from idols. The idol of a counterfeit Jesus presented to John's church by counterfeit teachers or presented to us by counterfeit teachers. The idol of a Christ who's different from the Christ that's here, different from the Christ that was sent from God and witnessed to by the apostles. A different Christ. The idol, and this is just as bad, the idol of being our own captain of our own theological ship. We're going to go our own way we're going to trust in our own meager intelligence, maybe even in the spirit of the age instead of in God's wisdom and love and scriptures. Or here's another one, the idol of choosing some truths from Christianity, but not others. Christianity is not a buffet. It's the religion of 
of Christ and his apostles as revealed in the New Testament, full stop, the Apostle John won't let us pick and choose, for example, between God is light and God is love. Now, some of us are really attracted to the God is light part, right? I mean, just by personality. We like things that are, you know, strict and right and, and true, and, and, and we're really attracted to that. But we probably don't love people, don't have the mercy and the kindness to people like we ought to have. Others of you are really attracted to God is love, and you say, yes, we, ought, we need to be... We need to be lowly and humble and loving and merciful. But sometimes people with that bent don't care so much about truth and holiness. This happens. And John says, no, God is light and God is love. God is light and God is love. And that's why he tie, John ties all these truths together in the book of 1 John. So when you look at it, it looks all jumbled and tangled and you go, where's he going with this? Have you noticed that as you read 1 John? You can't outline the book of 1 John. 1 John is resistant to analysis. But John, it's kind of like when you put the, the, the spaghetti, slotted spaghetti spoon into the pot of cooked spaghetti and the whole thing comes out. You ever done that? <laughs> it's a little more than I want. <laughs> uh, and John would say, yes, that's the way it is. It's a package deal. You can't pick and choose. Praise God. God knows better than we do. And finally, this last sentence takes us back to the very first sentence, which says, that which was from the beginning. Now, you know that that phrase, that which was from the beginning, referring to Jesus Christ, that phrase is, is the way Jewish, ancient Jewish writers used to talk about God. God, who is eternal. They say, he, God, is from the, from the beginning, means he's eternal. And so here's Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God. And then at the very end of... First John, we see this verse that says, little children, keep yourselves from idols. And you put those two together and you go, oh, I see it. I understand it. Only that which is eternal can sustain our eternal love, our eternal faith, our eternal joy. We were not made, if you want to put it negatively, we were not made. We were not designed to worship false and temporary gods. Only that which is eternal has enough glory and value and weight to truly satisfy you forever and ever and ever and to sustain your adoration forever and ever. Temporary things can't do that. Possessions and riches, they're not eternal. They will utterly disappoint you if you give yourself to them. Sex and sexuality, no. They have a beginning and an end. If you make sex and sexuality the most important identity in your life, you will be completely and utterly disappointed because God created you to worship that which lasts forever and give yourself to that. And John would also say, a false Christ is not eternal. They come and they go. We've seen them come and go. Sun Myung Moon said he was the Christ. He died in 2012. Korean man named An Sang Hong said he was the Christ. He died in 1985 and didn't rise from the dead. They're temporary. Only the God who is eternal can save you and satisfy you forever. Amen. In a few minutes, we're going to come to Christ's table. He invites us, if you're a Christian, to come to his table.
And as you do that, I want you to ponder this. If God were not both light and love, we would not need the propitiation of Jesus, the sacrifice that turns away God's wrath. We wouldn't need it. If God were just the God of light and holiness, uh, turning against our treasonous sin with unimaginable fury and anger, he'd just send us to hell. If God were just a God of love, uh, he, would, he would be like a, he would trample his own righteous laws and overlook our treasonous guilt and just let us off the hook with a wink and a nod. Who wants a religion like that? Like a judge who takes bribes. But hallelujah. Say it with me. God is light and God is love. On the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, the holiness of God and his righteous laws were completely vindicated. God is light says, condemn the sinner. God is love says, forgive the sinner. And on the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, you were condemned and you were forgiven. So when you come to this feast in a few minutes, it's, it's a feast, not a funeral. You don't have funeral meals for someone who's risen from the dead. When you come, come joyfully. Behold, think about, meditate on the body of Christ and his blood given to you to satisfy the holiness of God and to fulfill the love of God in your life. Eat and drink with tears of joy. Amen.